This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. I'm uh, staring at your massive iced coffee. That is maybe the biggest iced coffee I've ever seen. I figured that you were going to mention it. Um, <laughs> it's It looks bigger than it is. It's in a big mason jar because, you know, that's me now. I'm, I have a man bun and I drink my iced coffee out of a <laughs> mason jar. For the listeners, this mason jar is not like your little pickle. This looks like a like a gallon mason jar. It's not a gallon. That's <laughs> that's an exaggeration. It is your standard large mason jar, and it's only I don't know like half full. You got to remember some of this up here is just foam. Oh, okay. But so. you're drinking that looks like a hose, not a straw. No, that's that's fair. No, it is. <laughs> it's a little bit extra, and it's also ever since we got an espresso machine in the office, I have been experimenting with different things and I'm trying to like rein in the best kind of ice latte recipe, trying different syrups and everything. This one's a little, it, this is closer to a milkshake than a coffee <laughs> at this point. Uh, you, you are much more uh, creative with the coffee maker. I more or less just put my mouth under the spigot and mainline coffee. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good way to use it. I, I still really before the summer is out on a nice hot day, want to try a sparkling Americano which is you make your espresso as normal, but instead of adding water to it, you add sparkling water, and then you infuse it with either like an orange peel or lemon and mint or some sort of like flavor blaster gets in there. It, it's apparently very, very good and refreshing. Man, do we sound pretty elitist, coffee, pompous. <laughs> One of us does. You just talked about sticking your mouth under the, the hose. But no, I, I, I'm excited to, to try that before. Andrew at ppulse.com is my email if you want to send me your espresso <laughs> recipes because uh, I like to get creative with it. What should we talk about besides coffee, Miles? I'm sure we could go on and on, but I think people want to hear about the news. We can talk about some news. There's, you know, there's stuff. A couple happened. of things, right? So why don't we, I like to do this geographically, as you may have noticed. And I think that because both of these stories are technically in Ephraim, depending on how you want to how you want to label Peninsula State Park. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about the Ephraim portion of it first, then we'll take a break and come back for the Peninsula State Park part. I want to dangle something exciting for people to, to listen past the ads with. I think a lot of people will be interested in the, the story about the Memorial Pole in Peninsula State Park, so yes. we'll come back to that. I agree. So what's going on in Ephraim? I know that we talked about Ephraim a little bit last time. We talked about uh, housing development and another project that was going on. Is this an update to those projects? It is, and it might further your education on, on who builds a neighborhood. Um, yes. <laughs> the, so we, we talked about the, there's a 16-acre parcel on Townline Drive near the corner of Townline Drive and Highway 42 where Keith Garrett and Chris Schmeltz are trying to build what originally was proposed as a 23-unit housing development of single-family homes. They pared that down to 22 at the behest of the Planning Commission after getting some original feedback from the Ephraim Planning Commission. And they came back to the Planning Commission in July and kind of put the proposal forward again And because the, the Planning Commission had said, oh, we need time to think about it. Let's come back and talk in July. So they came back, and a lot of people showed up at this meeting. It's one of those classic uh, Door County meetings where all the neighbors came in and filled the town hall for, okay. for meetings that are usually pretty empty in Ephraim. Yeah, I am. All right, I'm concerned. I want to hear about this meeting because generally when we talk about these kind of filling the town hall meetings, we're talking about things that may be controversial. And this, <laughs> this is not, you know, a million-dollar bathroom on the Fish Creek Beach. This is housing. Why is this controversial? Because it's change in Ephraim, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, I hate to say it as simply as that, but, like, uh, they... It's not, you know, like if you put this in almost anywhere in the United States, it wouldn't really raise eyebrows. But in Ephraim, you know, people see it as an incredibly dense, large-scale development. And it does do one thing, and this is common, is people would say, hey, if you want, it, it, it kind of has a suburban-style look to it. You know, it's a cul-de-sac neighborhood that has 22 homes in the style that you would see in a small suburb, 
And, you know, a lot of the, the classic complaint I've heard and, and I've said too, like, hey, if you want the suburbs, live in the suburbs. If you want Door County, like that's not where you come to Door County for. However, that's kind of what I would say like 15, 16 years ago. But now you need some of that density. You need some of this style to get the housing prices down right. to a reasonable level. Now, this is not being billed as affordable housing. I don't want to give that impression. I, I talked to Chris Schmelz on the phone after the meeting. He doesn't know or he's hesitant to say what the price point would be because housing costs fluctuate so much right now. I mean, the cost of everything fluctuates. The cost of us putting out the paper, buying paper, getting the paper delivered, the fees at the post office for us from week to week are fluctuating wildly right now. And well, I shouldn't even say fluctuating. They're just going up. Fluctuating gives the indication that they go up and down. They're just going up. For building costs, there actually is some up and down. But in any case, I'm getting a little off off the point here. They came back with this 22 unit development a couple of dozen people spoke at this meeting, almost all of them vehemently opposed to the development. And the complaints you heard were somewhat similar. You know, you, you got the classic quaint. This isn't quaint Ephraim. This isn't in keeping in the character of Ephraim. It's too dense. And there were a couple of people who said things like, this is going to damage the aquifer that we all draw on from for drinking water. And this would be detrimental to the Niagara escarpment was another thing that people mentioned. Hmm. All right. I'm, I'm trying to parse all of this. So in terms of like the quaintness, as you're driving north from Ephraim, would you see this development off the road? If they were to clear cut all the trees on the lot and around the lot lines, yes. I don't know what their plan would be for that, but I would I would guess no. But I mean, people have done dumber things. My hunch is that, no, you probably wouldn't see it, or if you did, you would barely see it. Right. So that that kind of defeats the quaintness argument for me because it's, you know, not a big in-your-face, we're building right off the highway kind of development. It's something that's, you know, tucked away somewhat. And I should describe the homes. They are one-story. They're not ranch-style, but they are one-story homes, one-and-a-half-story homes of 1,700 to 2,300 square feet as proposed right now. That is, as we talked about last week, that is smaller than the average new home built in the United States today. The average for a new home build is about 2,600 square feet. They, some would have a garage, some would have a carport. That's kind of, there's a mix of designs here. So it's not as proposed what they've thrown out there and who knows what Ephraim would approve, but they are not like a cookie cutter, everything looks the same sort of situation, which is kind of the general small development that you would see up here. And yeah, they're, they're white buildings with, Fieldstone, they're kind of modern farmhouse look to most of them. So, and what the developer said is we tried to design it to hit what the market desires and match as closely as possible to what Ephraim has, which is, you know, the classic white buildings. Sure. So it sounds like decent houses, as long as they're priced, you know, under 300,000, seems like these are going to be homes that families could move into potentially. They, They don't seem like they're super desirable as like Airbnbs because they're in a a neighborhood, right? So you're bringing up a very good point. First of all, I would be surprised if they came in at 300,000 or less, but I don't know. I mean, the average cost of a new build right now is $369 per square foot. For new builds built in Door County, that's what they're selling for. That would come out to like $680,000, but those are based on recent sales. Doesn't account for fluctuations in, you know, the location of those homes and how many acres they were on. So, you know, some of those might be five acres. These would be little lots within a development. So I don't think they, they wouldn't go for the same price and they would be in part of a condo. But I would think, you know, just ballparking it somewhere in the four to five might be the range. Not po- like that's just a guess on my part. And is that taking into account the current housing market being wildly blown out? Yes. Okay. So maybe in a more sane time in that 300,000 range? Yeah. If I were having this conversation with you 10 years ago, this development would be I would say like, hey, maybe we, we could do, yeah, as somebody who works a lot on housing projects, I would look at something like this as being a kind of a model because they're, they're doing these homes where each, each well is shared by two properties, which is in all the housing discussions I've had with builders and you know, small builders, big builders, one of the big things is spreading out the cost of things like wells. So I've always toyed with the idea of, well, what if we get someone to build four homes in a rural area because in most places aren't served by sewer and water in Door County. But if you could do one well that would serve four homes, you could split the cost of that, you know, twenty to $30,000 well 
amongst those four homes and you're bringing the cost of the home down. So that's part of what that would do. So if this were 10 years ago, I'd be like, this might be a way to build 22 homes and sell them for $250,000 each. Yeah. Now that might be 350,000 or, or more. Right. That's just the way the, the market has changed so dramatically. It's also kind of, it's not a pocket neighborhood in terms of, if anyone knows what those are, it's a popular way and it's something we've looked at with the Wiltsey property in Sister Bay of maybe building these little pocket neighborhoods of dense, small homes that would be starter homes for people that our idea would be trying to do that in sort of the housing trust way in which they would stay in the affordable stock in perpetuity so they wouldn't be someone something that someone could buy and flip is kind of the idea we've looked at. That is, to be clear, that that is not what's on the table with this development. But this look is basically very similar to what we've looked at in terms of how we would build affordable housing on parcels elsewhere in the county. And the density number, so that's 22 homes on 16 acres, which is dense for, for some areas of Door County for sure. There's a lot of places in Door County that are zoned, called it Heartland 3.5, which is what I live on. I'm on 3.6 acres. There's Heartland 5. There's Heartland 10. But there's also... The Arbors, pretty much directly across the street, another condo development that probably nobody would say they know other than the signs on the highway. I think there's about 20 condominium units in that development on six acres. What's your like standard acreage for a neighborhood where you've got like a little bit of a front yard, a little bit of a backyard, basically no side yard? What's the standard acreage? One gotcha. acre? I, I would guess like if you were looking at like a suburban area, say like outside Green Bay or something, sure. I bet you you'd be looking at half an acre. Okay. That's probably, I'm thinking what I grew up on was half an acre to an acre. Yeah. Is that? Cause I had like a, a decent front yard, just like your basic setback front yard, no side yard at all. But then we had, you know, maybe twice as much backyard as we did front yard. Yeah. And you know, there's actually, I looked around just going using the door County GIS map. And as you look around the neighborhood of single family homes right around this property, it's not a lot less dense. You know, it might be 10 homes on 20 acres instead of 22 on, on 15. So it's not like it's, there's, it's not like it's surrounded by single family 10, you know, or something like that. They've also talked about putting in what they've committed to, what the builders committed to was putting in a stipulation that these could never be short-term rentals. These oh. have to be people living there for 30 days or more. There you go. Now that doesn't preclude them from being seasonal homes, but it does take away the short-term rental thing which would also bring the cost down because one reason some of the homes have skyrocketed in value is because people are like, well, I can invest in that in a second home because I can, I know I can cover all my carrying costs with, with just like a few rentals a year. Right. So that would take that away. So it eliminates a certain segment of buyer. So I, but again, I, what the builder wants to make out of it, he has said he wants these to be moderately priced homes. And again, he did, he said like, I can't commit to what that might be because once I put that down and if it's not that people are going to be up in arms saying I committed to a price. And I get that to some degree. I think it would help a lot if you came up with the ballpark price. It would help people envision it yeah. because right now you're left doing what I do, which is extrapolate from the recent sales that he gave everybody, which right. makes you go, well, well, I do the math. It's almost 700,000. Well, that's not great. Now, some people look at that and say like, well, if these are four or $500,000, nobody can afford that. Nobody can afford that in Door County. But that's... No, that's, go ahead. I'll wait. That, that's Ephraim calling. Ephraim's like, wait, wait, wait. We have the numbers. <laughs> so what uh, the thing about that is people see like, well, it's 300000 or it's 400000 or it's 500000 Nobody can afford that. That's not solving any of our problems. And it does not solve some of our problems. It does yeah. not solve the problem of the people employed at the daycare center where we both send our kids. That's not going to be affordable for them by any stretch of the imagination. It's not going to put servers in restaurants. It's not going to put, you know, housekeepers in hotels. It's not going to... It's, it's not going to help a single bartender. You know, like, yeah. and by that, I mean, a bartender who is single. <laughs> not like, right. it's not going to help anyone. But if your household income is around $100,000 or more, you could potentially afford a $400,000 house. I wouldn't say that would necessarily be like the best financial decision. Maybe not. It depends on your debt and all those different ratios. But... The thing is, like the a lot of, and I talked to bar owners up here, their full-time year-round bartenders are pulling in over $50,000 a year and some why, a lot more. Why am I working here? Yeah. <laughs> go be um, a bartender. It seems fun. <laughs> but then, and if you had a teacher, like the average teacher salary at Gibraltar for a starting teacher is well over 40000 now. And then as you get experience and get further in degrees, you're, you get over 50000 you get in the $60,000, $70,000 range. So with really great benefits. So if you had a household that was a teacher and a bartender, 
you might feasibly afford that. Now it wouldn't be as good as this was 10 years ago when that would be like a, a step for financial freedom, maybe a really great investment for you that would appreciate you're paying at the top of the market, right? <laughs> There's all sorts of other things, but I'm just saying that there is a segment in the middle. There's a segment yes, between that's a good point. the rich second homeowner or the wealthy retiree and the lowest level of our service industry up here. There is yeah. some, there's a middle there of young families or, or I can't say I'm a young family anymore, <laughs> like middle, middle, you know, 35 to 50 year olds who are making maybe a hundred thousand dollars in household income, but there's no houses in that 250 to 400 range either. So not only are there not starter homes, but there's not anything in that middle. And this potentially, depending on where this would come in, would serve that middle. And you know what? Gibraltar High School or Gibraltar Schools sent an email out to a ton of people a couple of weeks ago, basically begging for beds because they don't have places for new teachers to live. So teachers are sleeping on somebody in somebody's guest bedroom and, and couches. And I've talked to the EMS director up here and the fire chiefs. They are losing staff who can't find housing. Municipalities have told me they are losing staff who just can't afford homes. And, and even, I shouldn't even say can't afford homes. There's just no homes. These aren't people that are impoverished. These are people who make really good money and maybe have great benefits at their job. There's just nothing on the market. Right. And that, that's a good point because we, of course we need affordable housing, right? There, yes. we, we have a, a great need for young people and young families to move up here to get starter homes, to work in service industries, to work in childcare, to do those things. We have a great need for that. But we do also have a need for the, the next tier of the economy, right? As you're saying, like we're talking doctors and teachers and people who might want to move a business up here. Nurses, police officers. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other part of it too. Like if you are, if you're at the top of a big, big business, you can retire up here in a million dollar home. But if you have like a, you know, just a decent business and you're like, Hey, I probably want to move up to Door County and maybe move my business there. Or I want to work from home for this business, but I want to have something substantial, you know, that I've got two teenage kids. I want to have some room. I want to, you know, have a decent house. That's the market for, for that type of person. And we need all of that, right? So I have been on two search teams in the last year, not to mention like the fact that, you know, you're always kind of looking for people at, at the pulse here, but on two nonprofit director searches. And one of the biggest questions we always face is where can this person live if we get them and how long will it take for them to have a house? And will they stick around after they get frustrated trying to find a place to live? I mean, that's, it's a real concern even for positions that are paying $75,000 to $200,000. <laughs> so it's, I, I don't think, no matter how much we've talked about this on the podcast and how much I've written about it, when I sit in these meetings and I hear what people in the crowd say, but, you know, I don't expect the people in the crowd to know everything, but the people on the plan commissions and on the boards, when I see the level of the understanding that they lack about the housing situation is stunning to me, to be up here and be in a position like that. And many of them own businesses. And I was like, we still don't get it. We, like, and the degree of need, but also how, like, you can't say we don't want density and we don't want it in our downtown areas and we don't want it in our rural areas and we don't want it less than one house per five acres. You can't say that. And then also say you want the housing because you need density to make something affordable. That's just a matter of fact. Yeah. And there's, there's only so much property like what they're wanting, right? Cause they're wanting, well, why can't it look like the rest of the housing? Well, cause all that housing's already there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to some extent like, and I know some, some people who have, have voiced concerns here. It's like, well, yeah, it, it can't look like yours because your house is $800,000. It can't look like that right. and be affordable. Like that's just a matter of fact. Now this is not all to argue in favor of this plan or anything. I'm just I'm tr trying to put the context for the argument that this is happening within. Yes. I, I find it weird that there's an argument at all just because usually when we find these controversial topics, they are about something where it's like, I can see where people are coming from. But for me, just in my naive viewpoint, I think housing good, right? Housing good. Condo less good. Housing good. Condo <laughs> stimulate economy. Housing potential for worker. So housing good, right? Yeah. I mean, 
yeah, I mean, I, I, so I'm trying to find a way to be there. There are, cons- I get it. Anybody in their neighborhood, if somebody were proposing 22 units next door to me, I'd have serious concern about it, but I would want to figure out like, you really have to step back and go, is this selfishness or is this a valid concern here? And there's, there's a little bit of both here. Like if you had a field next to you for all this time, but like, even I look at my home, I've said this before on the podcast. I know that if I want the orchard to stay next to my house forever, I have to buy that orchard. Yep. That's, that's it. And this Ephraim isn't, this isn't a zoning change. It's been zoned for pretty much this exact development for 15 years, since 2004. Ephraim put in a, what's called a planned residential development zoning district to encourage housing development. And this would actually, like you could potentially build 52 units on this parcel. I think that that's an interesting point because this is, you could, I say that you could do 52 units based on how Ephraim zones it. And so what a developer will tell you is they go, and there are some developers who I think are shady, who I don't like, who come through and they're like trying to weasel every last ounce out of a thing or ask for a total change of use in a park property. And I'm like, well, as Emily Pitchford once said in Egg Harbor, when somebody was like, well, you got to tell me, you got to give me some guidance. She's like, we have a zoning code. That's your guidance. Well, in this case, Ephraim has a zoning code. This person has come in with something that basically fits that zoning code. And now they're saying we don't want it. As Chris Schmeltz told me, if you don't want it, just then don't allow it. Yes. But your code says that. We looked at this parchment and you say, oh, that's what they want there. So we'll propose something there. So people have been talking about the new building in Bailey's Harbor, the Lakeshore Adventures building. And you had made a great point about like this building, like it or not, fits the zoning perfectly. Like right. that that's what it's zoned for. And I wonder if when when communities are coming up with their zoning, I bet there's a lot of discussion about like, what opportunities would this allow? Like what's the best people could use this zoning for? I wonder how many times they go, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst thing? That very somebody, rarely happens. But that's the thing that, that comes up so often is like, uh-oh, this is a very controversial plan. Well, we didn't think about the worst case scenario when we came up with our zoning. Like you describing 50, 50 lots per whatever, that's worst case scenario. Yeah. And so why allow for well, that? Well, maybe it is. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to argue for that, but like, well, if that were 52 apartments that could rent for $800 or less, I'd be like, that parcel would not strike me as a place to do 52 units, but there's no place in Door County that would strike me as the place to do 52 units. So it's got to be somewhere and it's zoned for it. Like your community did a comprehensive plan and said, put it there. Yeah. So, <laughs> now, so if you want to, if you don't want to run into this issue of like, uh oh, this this does not fit our ideal of what we want the community to look like or be like, then you have to think about the worst case scenario in your zoning. Try to find something bit, yeah. like if you if you can sit down and go, hey, here's the worst case scenario for our zoning, and we're comfortable with this, then I think you've got a good zoning plan. If you're not comfortable with the worst case scenario, then you can't be upset when people come and propose it. Not to say that this is that or that the Lakeshore Adventures building is that. I'm just saying in general, you got to be comfortable with what the worst proposal could be. And what that requires is taking part before it comes up, taking part in the planning, not the reaction. And there are some, you know, if if I were them and I had this zone for this, you'd have to look at like, all right, what do we want to do to mold this project? And there are some things that I would definitely be concerned about. If I were a neighbor, and I think even when I pull into Sister Bay, I'm like, what could could we flip this development? Like before you start development, you must plant trees because <laughs> we all know people hate looking at these new developments and these new yeah. houses and stuff. Just mandate that people plant a bunch of trees along the road right from the start. Because you know what? If I ask people if they know about Heritage Lake or Cottage Glen or the development just south of Bailey's Harbor that Joe Parent built, nobody knows they're there. Why? Because they got a big tree buffer and those are really dense developments, probably denser than this one. And yet nobody knows about them. The arbors, Nobody knows about it. It's, it's, it's hidden behind trees. And in the arbors, you have young families and teachers living there because that's how they're going to be able to afford a house. Yeah. So I would start by like, hey, let's have a really good buffer plan for all the neighbors because I think that's being fair to your neighbors. Just like Gibraltar should have had a great tree buffer plan in place before they clear cut the entire park and built that parking lot and just like exposed all these homes around it. Like be a good neighbor and do right by them just like you would want them to do to you, right? right. So that's one thing I would do. I mean- and you got to look at traffic impact, but, and that came up at the meeting, but it's, it's hard to say that 23 homes are going to have more of a traffic or 22 traffic impact than the Red Putter, McKeever Yeomans, the 200 hotel units in the area, the galleries. I mean, this is, this is in a 
dense commercial district. Yeah. It's actually its own commercial. Throw a roundabout up there. You'll find. Well, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) But, you know, there there are definitely concerns. And, hey, you know, like Chris Meltz in Sister Bay with the hotel door started with one plan, got approved, and then came back for more, more density, more of this, more rooms. I don't want to do retail now. I want to do more hotel rooms. You know, like I would if I were Ephraim, I would be guarded against that. Like, is this really what you want to build or are you going to come back for something else? Keith Garrett is partner in this development. Checkered history in Sister Bay. If I were Ephraim, I would really want to look into that and make sure that we had a commitment and the financing to go through with this project if we say yes. So there are some things you would definitely want to do. It's going to be interesting. What ultimately came down is they had everyone spoke against it. They never really outlined how the conditional use permitting process works because that's what Chris Meltz is looking for here. He needs a conditional use permit to do the project. And we've talked about it before. To deny a conditional use permit, you really need findings of fact. You need evidence. Egg Harbor denied the shipwreck permit in 2020 or 2021. I can't remember exactly which year it was. Every year in the last couple of years has been a decade. That is still working its way through the courts because shipwreck is challenging their basis for denying that. The Quarry RV Park, that was about 30-some hours of hearings that I sat through, and that was more like a trial. It was very specific to what are your evidence-based reasons for saying no or for, for saying no on this basis. of What do you have to prove that would negatively impact property values? What do you have to prove that it would be too much traffic for that road? So those kind of things. What do you have as evidence to say that this would be bad for the aquifer? That did not happen. So the the plan commission in Ephraim apparently was not aware of that. So when they were prepared to vote no and they were about to have a vote and their attorney stepped in, James County, who has sat in on a lot of these meetings elsewhere and reminded them about Act 67, which basically said what I just told you. You can't, if you're going to say no, you better have a really good basis. So then they tabled this decision till next month because they weren't prepared to have those findings of fact to base that denial on. So James County is going to go back and and basically see if he can write up those reasons that would be that would legally hold up to saying no to the project. So that's where they ultimately left it. And it's going to be really interesting how that next meeting takes shape. And I, I think that next meeting might be a really long one. So the town wants to say no? They just have to find a, a, a reason to? Yes. And basically their reason at the meeting was, well, everyone said no, and we don't like it, and we don't we don't like the look, and we're worried about things. But being worried about something isn't the same as saying this will definitely have this impact. Right. So that's what they got to come back with. Got it. Quick sidebar before we move on, because we do, we do need to get on to our second topic. How does this development proposal stack up against like the development behind the door County trolley company and side sidebar? How's that development going? So door County trolley company, you're referring to their depot in egg Harbor. Yes. So behind that, that is, I believe the orchards and I don't know if that's split into multiple smaller developments or if that's all part of the Orchards yeah. development, but it's basically between County E and the Orchards Golf Course. I would guess that might be a little less dense than what this is. Those homes would be bigger than the ones that are proposed here in Ephraim. And, you know, that's a, that's a good question because one thing that these commissions don't really do, and, and developers don't do it, and really, like, I don't think Schmelz gave a, a great proposal there. Like it would have been hard to say yes right there. You might've tabled it just to be like, Hey, come back with more information. Tell us what these are going to be selling for. You know, if I were on that plan commission, I might be like, if I'm going to vote yes, I want to be able to go tell my constituents what I voted for. Right. So that there definitely probably was not enough information to give it a, to give it a go. But all these developers know what these local boards are like up here. I'm surprised they don't come better prepared over and over again. Yeah. So if you were going to come forward with this plan, I would probably, you know, go find another example. Hey, this is what one looks like at this density level. Here's another development in your town that has this level of density. And here are pictures. And here's what that looks like. Is that out of character? Right. You know, that would be part of it. Like in Sister Bay, one of the things that always comes up is people say like, well, that just doesn't look right. Oh, what does look right for Sister Bay? And then, you know, the plan commission will say something like, well, I don't know, go walk through town and take a look around and and you'll get some ideas. And I was like, Okay, so you're telling someone to look at the on-deck building, the hardware store, the Sister Bay Bowl, Husby's, Al Johnson's Grass Roof, <laughs> Wild Tomato, yeah. and, and Casperson's Funeral Home, and you're going to say, now come away with what it should look like. Like, w- what 
consistent style there's, is there? Yeah, I mean, those buildings are all wildly different. Like one is a 1880s Western looking building. <laughs> I mean, one is a 1960s industrial building. One is a log home from Norway. With like, a grass roof on it. Like, I mean, how does one walk through there and go like, oh, I know what Sister Bay is looking for. In Ephraim, at least you can. At least you, like, it's probably the one place where you could walk through it and go, well, I should probably paint it white. <laughs> so, yeah, and and how much of that changes over time, right? Like if you were to take Bailey's Harbor for an example, you had the what used to be Dor Shakespeare's office, which is now Bearded Heart. I mean that that is like a big two story, almost looks like a home with a huge porch. And then the Door County Brewing Company built something really, really similar to that in like shape. Yeah, but you know the. Having those two big examples is like, this is what Bailey's Harbor looks like. One of them is less than five years old. Yeah. And it was just kind of maybe riffing off of one other design in the town. Go across the street and say like, all right, what if what if somebody proposed Nelson's Hardware? You know, a, a place that everyone loved, right? But if somebody came with that as a building plan today, it would be, I mean, people would lose their minds. Like there might be pitchforks in the street if Bailey's Harbor said yes to a proposal like that, as big, as dense, you know, six six units, housing units on such a small parcel of property, maxing out the lot, people would lose it, right? Yeah. Florian, that building structure today, if somebody proposed it, almost for sure they'd be saying that's not in character. If the Blue Ox never existed, and tomorrow somebody suggested a shacky-looking tavern in the middle of Bailey's Harbor, imagine the kind of outcry there would be. Well, that one I would say probably not. I feel like there'd be a lot of people on Facebook being like, oh, looks so quaint, just like when I was a child. <laughs> Maybe. So, okay, we we have to we have to move on. People want to know about this memorial poll. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Peninsula State Park. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. Some of Door County's best stargazing happens indoors. Every year at Door Community Auditorium, we present a star-studded lineup of concerts featuring artists like Brandy Carlisle, The Lumineers, Jason Isbell, Mavis Staples, Billy Strings, Beach Boys, and Buddy Guy. You're now listening to Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives returning to our stage in Fish Creek, October 22nd. Visit dcauditorium.org for a full calendar of upcoming events and to get your tickets today. Okay, we are back. There uh, was a memorial pole in Peninsula State Park, and I think uh, I had learned about it when you first started talking about this story, but I don't know how how many people knew about the the pole. Where was it and that kind of stuff? We'll get into the, the background, but I'm just curious, like, if, if you were to say, hey, you know, the memorial pole or the, the totem pole, whatever you wanted to call it, yeah. if you were to say that, how many people would go, oh, yeah, I know what that is? I think a lot of people... If, especially if they grew up here, would know. And then, you know, long-time tourists, probably golfers, for sure. But yeah, maybe the casual tourists might not know. And if they did know about it, they probably don't know the story behind it and why it's there. And what we're talking about is the totem pole that sits on, if you're driving down Highway 42 and you cross the golf course at Peninsula State Park, look to your left. And if you're driving north, look to your left. And then uh, you would see this totem pole you know, a couple hundred yards away, just to the left of the ninth fairway, facing the highway. Well, you would see it. You don't see it anymore, right? You would see it, yeah. It came down sometime about a month ago, and that's when it wasn't announced or anything. There was no public meeting about it. You know, for the general public, they had meetings about this. And so we, I got an email, and somebody said, hey, Memorial Pole came down. And I'm like, okay, I'm sure it's just a little thing. And the thing, I knew it was in bad repair, so I'm like, yeah, it's probably just getting fixed up, so... But I did, you know, when people suggest those kind of things, I'm always like, all right, I'll put that on my list of things to check in on. And I checked with uh, Eric Hyde at Peninsula State Park, the superintendent. And I said, yeah, what's the plans that came down? Is that being refurbished or what's happening next? And he said, 
uh, yes, the pole has been removed and there are no plans to replace it, which is similar to what the DNR said when uh, they took down Eagle Tower. It was just like, yeah, we've closed Eagle Tower and we're going to be taking it down. And then crickets. And then like, do you not know that people are going to ask questions about this? Yeah. <laughs> so, DNR sometimes is very uh, dense when it comes to those things. Like, uh, this is going to spark some people to want a little more information about why. <laughs> right. And you didn't just get a little more information. You got a lot more information. And yes. uh, were you expecting this to send you down a 100-year rabbit hole? No, this is one of those stories where I thought I was just going to do a simple email and then I could email somebody back and be like, yeah, it has to come down for, you know, it gets, this would be the third time it's been rebuilt or whatever. This would be three sentences in the paper, right? Yes. And instead it was about 40 hours over the last few weeks. And a very complicated societal kind of question came out of it. So, I don't know. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> I think the beginning is probably the best okay. place to start. Let's go. So so there was this big bang. Um, well, let's meet in the middle. <laughs> okay. So in 19, the 1920s, Hjalmar, I think that's how, I'll just say Holand. Um, yeah, you know that. H.R. Holand. You know that, man. The Door County historian. We've talked about him a couple times on this podcast. Did you um, do air quotes with historian? <laughs> yeah, sometimes okay. I do. Uh, particularly in this case, actually. Complicated history with him as a historian in terms of factual accuracy. But in the 1920s, he has formed the Door County Historical Society. And one of the first big projects that he undertakes is trying to come up with a way to recognize the Native American history in the area. And... You know, there is a wonderful little toggle on your phone. The <laughs> iPhone has it built in. You could just flip it, and then that just won't happen again while we record the podcast. There you go. Sweet. All right. All right. Thank learned you for that. Some, yeah, learn something new every day. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> okay. So, Holand is trying to find out a way to recognize the Indians that had lived in Door County and were driven from their land by the white settlers. And this is in the 1920s, really only like a generation after that had happened. And he comes up with this idea to create a totem pole. You know, generally, I grew up thinking this, like, I think most white people grow up thinking, yeah, totem pole, all Indians have totem poles. You know, it's as stupid and basic as that is. I'm just trying to be as blunt and dumb as I probably was, still am. And so he makes a totem pole that he designs the bands for. And most, and then it, it's, it's meant it's kind of meant well, you know, for yeah, that this era. Is, this, listening to this is, is very funny. Old white man says we should really do something good for the natives. Let's build a totem pole. We have no idea what the you know significance of that would be. And also, does it even is it even appropriate for a person outside of a tribe to construct a tribal thing? Yeah, there's so many questions. Yep. And okay. that, that was one of the problems with this. I'm like, this seems more like a a long pamphlet or a book, then, well, definitely not the three-sentence update I thought I was putting in. And even something, I, it ends up being like a 1,400-word story. It's not nearly enough words to, to hash through all of this and, and the complicated matters in it, but it's the space that we have. So he, he creates this poll, and it's a big deal. It's really surprising when you look at this because by 19, I think he dedicates it in 1927. They put the poll up, 10,000 people, show up for the dedication of this pole, including 32 Potawatomi Indians. And because he built this to recognize the Potawatomi who had settled in Northern Door County and Washington Island for centuries. And he talks to what is referred to in the, at the time as the last hereditary chief of the Potawatomi. And this is Simon Kakwatos. And he comes up to this ceremony. And by all accounts, at least in the old newspaper articles, this was front page news on The Advocate for months going up to it. Mm -hmm. And at the, when it's finally done, it is front page news. It's a huge deal. They called it the biggest event, the largest gathering in the history of Door County at the time. So picture Peninsula State Park Golf Course, and we have photos of this with the article. The entire golf course over there, full of cars, that many people show up. And Chief Coquados is actually the man who unveils the totem pole. So he pulled, there's a big muslin wrap around it. He pulls that down and gives a speech and talks about how honored he is and how great it is to finally basically get recognized by the white man. And they do tribal dances. The 32 Potawatomi that came to, for the ceremony, some of them stayed with people in Ephraim. Some of them stayed in the park. 
The next day after the ceremony, they gave they did some other dances, drew thousands more. So people were really interested in this. The old articles are really interesting to read. One, in that it was such a big deal to honor this the, the Potawatomi at the time. Kind of like, the, you know, now we have these land acknowledgments, which are just readings or statements that we put in our books, like the county board or, you know, right on Door County or a lot of nonprofits, acknowledging that this land once belonged to somebody else. And it was stolen, basically. But... This was like an early form of land acknowledgement in a very public, prominent way with a huge symbol. You know, right. on our golf course, on our, uh, the white man's golf course, we're going to remind you that we, this wasn't ours, that we took it. And yet, so that, that it's really paradoxical. I talked to Benjamin Rode from the Forest County Potawatomi, and he said the same thing. He's like, it is really hard to fathom, like, how this all happened back then when you had a lot of European settlers of European ancestry honoring the people that, and and the chief of the tribe that they drove from that land. And also maybe not even like Holin said some things. And there were some comments in there that were, that were very critical of our history and like, Hey, we need to recognize that, that we have some really ugly skeletons in our closet yeah. here. And this is a good moment to think about what we did to these people. What now they, they would probably call critical race theory. And basically it'd probably be banned in Florida textbooks to, to even have this story. They'd probably wipe the newspapers clean, but, and a lot of people in Wisconsin would probably like that to happen. But it, it's kind of interesting that way back then they did 90 years ago, they were having that conversation. And yet at the same time, people at this ceremony probably were part of the removal. They, they were probably, I mean, if you were 70 years old, then you were part of taking that land. You know, it's really wild to, to think about that moment in time, and yet they were there to honor that tribe and this man, their chief. Right, and it wasn't just a reminder, right? It wasn't just a nice gesture. They also made it so that if a Native American wanted to, they could come and play your ball at any time. Uh, <laughs> they could take your golf cart. They, You basically were playing on their land, and they could do what they wanted with with the game. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's the correct interpretation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I really do hope that the, while the, I'm sure the poll was made with the best of intentions, I really hope that the symbols on it were true to what they were honoring. You know yeah, what I mean? They were, I, they were very true to whatever Holin came up with. <laughs> okay. Cause I was going to say, this would be, this would be similar to if the French gave us the statue of Liberty, but she was holding a hamburger and a gun. <laughs> That's well, that would probably be more American, honestly. That's what um, I was, yeah, that's what I was saying. That is kind of what it, what it was. And he, he designed it and in his own writings, Holin says that it's designed to honor the history of the Potawatomi. And it basically has one band on it that covers all of their history prior to the arrival of the white man. You know, centuries, millennia of history. And then it's all about interactions with the white man. White man arrives, trade begins, white missionaries are here. Eventually, there's like a nod to like, oh, and then the white men drove them from their lands. And, that, and now it's peaceful. Like, oh, and it, one of the bands is about how great the Potawatomi were at welcoming the, the white settlers. So this is akin to showing off a new thing that you bought at the store with a selfie. Sort of. In terms of wow, inserting a, yourself into this thing. And I am sorry for those who, I, I, I know we're injecting a little humor and kind of incredulity to this conversation, but it, it's really hard to wrap your head around, honestly. Like it is, in a cringeworthy sort of way, it's kind of humorous to see what was done. Yes. And yet it was like a whole in speeches. He did talk about, some of the right things in terms of like what was taken from these people and, and how awful this was. And then Kikwados, he was very honored by it. He actually bestowed a, a Potawatomi name on Holland in honor of what he had done for them. And then after leaving, he said when he died, he wanted to be buried near that totem pole. And so the odd thing now, and why I dove into all this history, is I knew a little bit about it. But when I talked to Eric Hyde at Peninsula State Park, they had met with the Forest County Potawatomi. To their credit, the DNR was like, okay, this thing is deteriorating. It's been hit by a ton of golf balls. It's not in great shape. We got to do something with it. Let's talk to the people it's supposed to honor about what they think should be done with it. And that was one of the rules too, right? If your golf ball hit the pole, you immediately had to leave the park. <laughs> <laughs> and when they did, the Forest County Potawatomi said, like, we don't have totem poles in our culture. Like there are tribes in the northwestern part of the country that I'm told totem poles were a thing, but none of the Midwestern tribes, most North American tribes did not have totem poles as a thing that they did. 
And Holland acknowledged this argument back in 1927 when he wrote about this. And he said, yeah, he said, I know that I know you guys don't, but come on. Right? Sort of. He said, <laughs> I know people say that this is not authentic, but I know that there are tribes and there are artifacts that have been found that show that they did use totem poles. And really, this is just and he, and he did acknowledge that basically he thought about doing a big stone, but the stone would like, you know, it's just a stone. He wanted to do something more colorful, more emblematic of the Potawatomi culture, obviously. But, but God his forbid eyes. he asked them. <laughs> and that is something I haven't been able to find. If he actually went and, and consulted with anyone about this. He had written about the history of the county and native interactions at great length, but with dubious accuracy as well. So when they, like, that's all just to get back to, like, the Forest County said, like, no, this is, this has no cultural significance to us. We don't know why it's there. Like, yeah, take it down. We would appreciate if you found a different way. They were like, please keep the rule about the golf balls, though. I, I do, I do want to get free golf in. Yes. They are referred to as the keepers of the fire, and they have come up with some, like, some ideas for a different way to honor them, a different sort of statue that would be more emblematic of their people and putting some information at the clubhouse so people could read it when they come in because basically all it was was just this pole in the middle of the golf course. And like, if you didn't stop and dig around or <laughs> slow down your golf game, like it was really hard to know why, what this thing was, what, what was the authenticity, what was there. There was a stone there because Chief Coquados actually was buried there. So in 1930, Chief Coquados dies in poverty in Blackwell, Wisconsin. And he was subsisting on about $10 a month, I believe. In, on, in government subsistence. And he had asked to be buried near the totem pole in Peninsula State Park. So they embalmed him and then they brought him to Door County the following Memorial Day and held a huge funeral. Again, thousands of people show up for this guy's funeral. I believe that the estimates were anywhere from six to 10,000. Those are based on newspaper reports. When at first that sounds like, okay, they obviously exaggerated, but there were clearly a ton of people. Again, like the park full of cars. So front page news, every time he would visit Door County, it would be front page news. When he died, it was front page news. And then uh, at his funeral, there were Potawatomi there who carried his casket in. The, the secondary chief at the time was one of the pallbearers. That man, James Wampon, he gave a speech at the ceremony. So clearly the people of the time recognized that this is where he wanted to be and that that held some significance to them in the moment. So it's interesting, 90 years later, that's been lost. And there's even, there's a quote that I led the story with this, this week about the fact that like people said, you know, hopefully this symbol won't get lost because people will forget what we say and do here, but they won't, we're going to try and make them remember. Yeah. I, this is, this is, I think, a great opportunity to, to reinvent this memorial, right? Mm -hmm. Because instead of it being Helmar Holland's totem pole that he gifted, it could actually be something representative and it could be something that is, is created with the input of the people that it is honoring. And it could be something that tells the real story that you just shared with me. And I think that that is, that's a great opportunity. I hope that, I hope that that happens. Yeah. And it, and it might, and Colleen Binns had said she owns uh, chief Oshkosh native American arts in egg Harbor and chief Oshkosh, another really famous, famous locally chief, who was beloved in Door County. But she said, you know, I'm Oneida. We don't have totem poles either. But she goes, I have a couple at my house. Like, that's what people think of. And it gives an opportunity for a conversation. And she said, you know, so the Potawatomi don't have a totem either, but we wouldn't be talking about this at all if this had never been erected. So it's serving some purpose in that way. And that's an interesting way to think about it. And like, even like statues or... Know, crosses or all sorts of different things that people do symbolically. I don't know that, you know, I guess my heritage is German. I have no idea what would be an authentic version of a German tribute, but I would think like a, a statue to someone that... A Stein. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Something like that. I, I'd just be like, oh, well, that's cool. They honored that person. Whether or not it was culturally significant to that person is, I don't know. I'm just like, well, that's cool. And now I remember and somebody's going to walk past this one day and know who that person or that thing was that and why it mattered. And I guess there's probably a better way to do it, but it's pretty fascinating how the history gets forgotten. And it, get, it, you know, there is a cross country race named after Chief Coquados at Gibraltar School. I went to Gibraltar. I never knew anything about the guy. You know, we have a race named after him, and maybe this presents an opportunity for 
more teaching about that history and who was here and what happened to them. And I know there's probably listeners of this podcast who don't think we should teach that. (laughs) And I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Like, I think we are better people by acknowledging those things we did wrong and learning from them and growing from them. It's just really weird that we even have to have this discussion in the United States today yeah. about that kind of thing. But that's a whole other topic. But I encourage people to read more about it. I've learned even more since it went online. I was contacted by a member of the Potawatomi from Ohio and said, actually, he's not a hereditary chief. <laughs> there's, they, he said there's no such thing as a hereditary chief in the, in the Potawatomi culture. You are elected or named or selected by your tribe as the chief, and it has nothing to do with genetics. I don't know that that's fact. I got that email. I'm talking to that guy later today. I'm still learning. When I talked to the members of the Forest County Potawatomi, I made it clear, like, I'm not coming at this as an expert. I thought I was getting into a simple story. I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And hopefully, you know, if we need to do something to correct the historical record in some small way to make more people aware, that'd be a great thing. And yeah, I'm looking forward to, to learning more. Yeah, this is this is a really really cool story. Very interesting. I love I love these rabbit holes that you get sent down on just these simple questions that turn into something <laughs> so much more. So uh, I'm glad that you were able to to dig into this. I can't wait to hear what what else comes out of this. And like I said, I hope that this is an opportunity to recreate this memorial into something more representative. I, and, I think that that's a a great thing. And something to leave people with at the end of this is that is what. Eric Hyde and the folks at Peninsula State Park intend to do. That is what the Forest County Potawatomi have emphasized that they want to do out of this is find the right way moving forward. So they are meeting again in probably September to try and get a better outline of that. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. And I know in the village of Egg Harbor, they're looking at doing something as well to acknowledge the people who came before them and do it in a prominent spot in the village. There was some debate about whether it should be off to the side. And there were, I know I talked to some people who were like, it's really important we put this front and center. Yep. So it's a movement of fort and it's not just to be forgotten. Right. Well, Miles, we are at 59 minutes. And as everyone knows, if we hit the hour mark and go over it, we will be taken out and executed. So we have to <laughs> wrap up. Thank you so much for, for both of these stories. Really interesting. I, I highly recommend people go to doorcountypulse.com and read more. It's also going to be in the Pulse today. If you pick up the Pulse, you'll be able to read there. I'm trying to get everything out before the last 30 seconds here because I'm sweating bullets. Is there anything else that you have to say? No, I'll shut up. Thank you. Andrew. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody enjoy the weekend. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.